Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. So here's this guy, John Wood, who gets lucky and makes a lot of money at a young age at Microsoft. It wasn't because I was a great person. It was because I, I won the lottery of life. I was born to, to educated parents who read to me. I had, I had a pretty decent school growing up. And so when I look at it, I thought, it's payback time, John. Leaving the fast track of corporate life to open thousands of public libraries in the third world. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. John Wood's energy is so infectious and uncontainable that he seems positively destined to change our world for the better. Through an organization called Room to Read, which John founded in the year 2000, his mission is to open public libraries and schools in the developing world. They estimate that about three million children in Asia and Africa already been direct recipients of his efforts to improve education and lift people out of poverty. What I find most inspiring is when I go visit a school or a library and a parent will say to me, you know, I, I helped dig the foundation of this school. Or a parent will say, I, I, I helped build these bookshelves in the library. There's a certain very strong sense of pride on the part of those parents that this has not been done for them. Um, this is something that they have actually taken ownership of. Dozens of elementary school-age students, some seated around a table, others on the floor, at a room-to-read library in Cambodia. The kids are all neatly dressed in white shirts. They eagerly reach for large, colorful picture books in the local language, which are displayed at child level. Many times the communities actually approach us, but we're, we are willing to act as a catalyst. So what we're doing with the community is to say, great, you tell us what you can contribute, and we'll tell you what we can contribute, and let's meet somewhere in the middle. In other words, we don't want to build the school or the library for the local people. We want to build it with them in a partnership. So I'll give you an example. That's a beautiful story from South Africa of a community out in the Eastern Cape, a very poor area of South Africa. 98% of the kids who attend this school um, are, are black, and they'd never had a library. They had over 1,000 kids showing up, and they never had a library. And we offered our local team offered to help them. And they said, great, but where can we put it? We don't have room. We don't have room. Can you build us a separate building? And our team said, we don't have money in our budget to build you a separate building. And they brainstormed for a while. And one day, the headmistress, the principal of the school, she said, I have this office. Why don't we turn my office into the children's library? 
and the teacher said, oh, no, you can't do that. You're the head. You know, that's where we have our meetings. That's where, and, and she said, we're running a failing school. If we, have a, if we have a school that doesn't have a library, we're failing. So she literally gave up her office. And I hear stories like that all the time of mothers in Nepal who will tell me that they carried 100-pound bags of cement two hours up a steep mountainside before sunrise as their contribution to their school. Uh, I was at a school in Laos last year where they asked every family to donate 10,000 kip, about one, well, just over one U.S. dollar, to help fund the school. And they had 3,000 families. These are poor farm families each put money in. We've had farmers who donate bags of grain to a community stockpile, and that community stockpile is then sold off, and it helps to buy some of the bricks and mortar. John Wood is a born entrepreneur. By the time we caught up with him for this interview, Room to Read had opened nearly 10,000 libraries and 1,000 schools, mostly in underprivileged villages in developing nations. His skills as a builder and promoter were honed at Microsoft, where he worked as the company's director of business development in China until quitting at age 35 to enter the nonprofit world. I joined Microsoft in 1991. And the company at the time was growing at a very, very rapid rate. And a lot of what I did with Microsoft was help us to develop our international markets um, across Asia. And I went on this really fateful holiday once when I was looking for an escape from Microsoft. I went off to the mountains of Nepal for 18 days to trek as an ideal escape from work. How high up did you get in the land of the tallest mountain in the world? About 18,000 feet was the highest that we, we got to, the famous Thrangla Pass up along the Tibet-Nepal border. Beautiful part of the world, but also just absolutely crushing poverty. And life is quite tough for people up in that part of the world, uh, being as isolated as they are. And uh, I think, you know, with poverty, it, it hits the children the hardest. And what I saw in Nepal was not just poverty, it was poverty of opportunity. That kids who wanted to go to school, who wanted to learn to read, didn't have schools, didn't have libraries, didn't have books. And so it was a real contrast to my life where I was making a lot of money at a young age, living this you know glamorous expat life as a Microsoft executive, and then juxtaposed against that were places like Cambodia, Vietnam, Nepal, where you literally had the you know the poorest of the poor. Tell us a little bit about that trek in Nepal and how it changed your life. I'll never forget visiting this little school in a village called Bahundanda, Nepal. I'd been invited by the headmaster, who I'd met by the side of the trail, to go for a, a tour of the school, and. You know, just absolutely dilapidated conditions. I'm sure a lot of your listeners ha- have seen this in the developing world where you see something that you think is a barn um, and it's actually a school, just terrible conditions. And this headmaster had 450 students showing up, and he, did, he didn't have books. And so, well, how are the kids going to learn to read? And he showed me the school's library, and it was a library in name only. It was a place where, you know, a, a library could have existed, but it was an empty room without, without books, without shelves, without a desks. Uh, without chairs. And the headmaster said something to me that would really change my life forever. He said, we are too poor to afford education, but until we have education, we'll always be poor. And I think that really sums up the situation for the poorest people in the world, that what a terrible conundrum to be in, too poor to afford education, but knowing that if your kids don't get educated, they're going to inherit the same poverty that their parents and grandparents have known. So that statement was really sad, but then he said something that was very hopeful. This headmaster said to me, perhaps, sir, you will someday come back with books. Having attained success at Microsoft, John Wood was ready to take on a new challenge in what for him were uncharted waters. Eventually, he would raise tens of millions of charitable dollars 
from corporate and private donors to support Room to Read. But as chronicled in his memoir, Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, the early days of Room to Read required patience and perseverance. I had undergone a pretty big change. I had abandoned one of the world's leading companies. I had a title. I had the fancy business card and the fancy you know, expatriate pay package and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, I was like this guy running an organization nobody had ever heard of, right? I, was, I had to define myself by what I used to do. Uh, I, I used to be director of Microsoft's business development unit in China. Now I'm delivering books in the back of yaks in rural Himalayan villages. And, you know, people, people thought I was a little bit crazy to do this because the, the, way that it, the way that philanthropy is traditionally done is that people will work until they're 60, 65, 70 years old. They'll, they'll accumulate their nest egg, and then they'll start giving it away. I was at age 35 walking away from one of the world's leading companies and saying, I'm going to start right now. Like, I, I can't wait 30 years because those kids who today are five or six years old, you know, next year is too late. Two years from now, it's too late. We have to reach these kids now. So I, it was difficult because I, I didn't have a name. I had a name as a software executive. I did not have a name as an education uh, entrepreneur. Were you afraid that leaving the comfortable womb of uh one of the most cutting-edge and wealthiest companies in the history of capitalism might pose uh, some problems and throw you into jeopardy? I was definitely worried because when I walked away from Microsoft, I didn't have enough of a nest egg that I could work for free forever. I knew I could work for free for a couple of years. But as anybody who remembers, the, you know, 2000, it was a terrible time to launch a nonprofit, right? The world's stock markets blew up, the internet bubble burst, and then we have two, September 11th happening. And here I am trying to get a nonprofit off the ground, you know, raising money in a, t in a terrible fundraising environment. And so I really, a lot of times, had almost lost faith. I thought, well, maybe I should just go back to, to work because I'm not raising, I mean, my first year I raised $50,000. I mean, you can't really do that much with $50,000. And I think what really got me through it was the, the friends and my, my parents who had the faith in me who said, just stick to this. This is going to be successful. It's just taking a little bit longer than you, you know, Mr. Type A personality would like. But what motivated you to dive into this project? It was a kind of a new idea. You were indeed establishing an organization from the ground up. Why were you so intensely drawn to it? I was intensely drawn to it because, what I, because of what I'd seen in the developing world, that you, know, you meet kids in Cambodia who don't go to school. You meet, you're in, I've seen villages where you know, the Khmer Rouge had burned down the school, and you know, 10 years later the school had never been rebuilt. And I thought, this is, just, this is ridiculous. How can you rebuild civil society if you don't have education? You look at South, I looked at South Africa where Nelson Mandela told us if you want to help South Africa post-apartheid, the best thing you can do is to help us educate our children. Yet you go through rural South Africa, and kids, aren't, kids don't have books. They don't have libraries. And so I was just driven to do something because I, I'm, I'm the product of a public education system. I went to a school that was not perfect, but in a small town in Pennsylvania, we had a public school. I went to a public university. We had a public library. We had a school library. I had Sesame Street. My father had gone through college on a, on, a, on, a, on a scholarship called the GI Bill. So here's this guy, John Wood, who gets lucky and makes a lot of money at a young age at Microsoft. It wasn't because I was a great person. It was because I, I won the lottery of life. I was born to, to educated parents who read to me. I had, a, I had a pretty decent school growing up. And so when I look at it, I thought, it's payback time, John. You, these kids in Cambodia, they could be you. It's literally, it's the lottery of life that says whether or not a child gets educated or not. And I just think that that's inherently silly. We, we need to move beyond that. 
Was there a component of your decision that involved any feeling of being dissatisfied in the traditional corporate world? A little bit. Uh, to be clear, I mean, I really, and I talk about this in my book, I felt like I learned a lot at Microsoft, and I feel grateful for the opportunity to have spent, you know, almost a decade there learning from great leaders uh, like Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates. So I, I wanted to take that what I had learned and say, can you apply this to the social sector, right? Because the private sector is really good at scaling, right? Microsoft grows fast, Google grows fast, Apple, Trader Joe's, you name it. These businesses that are successful scale, scale, scale. Take a small idea and be able to extrapolate and apply that in larger and larger realms. Exactly. And then I looked at Andrew Carnegie, and I said, this guy made one of the greatest philanthropic investments in human history by opening 3,000 libraries across North America that have paid dividends for tens of millions of people, generation after generation after generation. And I said, why is there no Carnegie of Africa? Why is there no Carnegie of India? Why is there no Carnegie of Southeast Asia? It, it, to, to me, it just didn't make sense that somebody had not taken this model of Carnegie and replicated it for the developing world because education and the ability to read it is a hand up, not a hand out, and it's the one thing that's guaranteed to lead towards self-sufficiency. So the, 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 the entrepreneur in me said, this is a huge opportunity to go out, and if, if the world needs thousands of libraries, well, let's go open thousands of libraries. Talking with John Wood, founder and executive chairman of Room to Read. He's author of Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, an entrepreneur's odyssey to educate the world's children. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Room to Read, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. What does Shiresh like? John Wood in Nepal with an elementary school-aged girl learning to read. He likes ice cream. He likes ice cream. What do Annie and Oni like? What do Annie and Oni like? They like chicken curry. They like chicken curry. Sitting at a long wooden table, John is dressed in a white T-shirt and wearing a garland of flowers around his neck presented to him as a gift. The girl and her schoolmates are all wearing a burgundy-colored school uniform. It's one of thousands of scenes where Room to Read makes education accessible to eager learners. There was a village in Sri Lanka where we were reopening a school that had been destroyed by the tsunami, and a lot of the people who were there were tsunami survivors. They had lost family members. Um, there were hundreds of people lined up in a, a corridor that we walked through to greet us. And I'll never forget... Every parent at the school had a name tag, but it didn't have their name. It said Mother of Shilpi. It said Father of Dinesh. And then you'd look down, and there are little five-year-olds holding their hand and kind of looking up at us with big eyes. And, the, you know, the school's opening that day. And it's just so hopeful to see those parents and how much they've invested, um, invested emotionally that their children will be the first, the first to finish primary school, the first to finish secondary school, the first to go off from their village and become a doctor or an airline pilot. So I see this as a magical time where we can create a movement that says every single child everywhere in the developing world deserves to have access to books, access to a school, and the ability to read. And if we can fix that, like you were pointing out, nearly a billion people lack literacy, how different would the world look if everybody 
could read and if everybody was always learning new things. What would the world look like if there were significantly greater literacy? It would be much more prosperous because education is the only long-term proven ticket out of poverty. It would be a healthier world because educated people live longer and have healthier families. It would definitely be a better world for women because women are definitely respected more when they're educated. But if a man has gone through eighth grade in India and the woman's gone through second grade, it's easier for the man to, to condescend towards that woman or to uh, not treat her as an equal citizen. And I think it'd be a much more peaceful and stable world. Uh, I talk in my book about the fact that when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, when the Soviets were defeated, it left a huge vacuum. And what happened? Well, the Iranians and the Saudis came in and built 10,000 madrasas that taught a very virulent kind of hate-filled version of, uh, of Islam, which at its heart is a peaceful religion. And so I look at that and think, if you could do these things over, all over again, what would you do differently? And wow, we should have been building schools, right? For, the, for you know, a small percentage of a military budget, you could just build schools and libraries all over the world. And that would be, I think, the best diplomacy you could ever do. Because when you help a child to get an education, those parents in that community, they'll be friends of America forever. What is the hardest part about teaching people to read in the developing world? Well, the hardest thing in the beginning was lack of books in the, in the mother tongue. Room to Read started as a program that actually brought English language books to places like Nepal, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And we went out and asked the students, what do you think of your new library? 52% of the students we surveyed said, there aren't enough books in my mother tongue. They didn't call it the mother tongue. They said, I want more books in Nepali. I want more books in Vietnamese. And it's a huge problem because throughout the developing world, the parents are too poor to afford books, so the publishers don't see a business case to publish. So you can find children's books in English, German, French, Spanish. You can't find children's books in Lao, Khmer, Vietnamese, Setswana, Zosa, Zulu. There just aren't book, enough books in those languages. So Room to Read set out to become um, one of the biggest publishers of children's books in these kind of forgotten languages, if you will. And are these books given away free? Yes, we, uh, we, we literally now have put over 7.5 million books into the hands of kids in nine countries across Africa and Asia, and well over half of them are, are mother tongue books that we've actually self-published now using local authors and local artists. And this is where really you start to break the cycle of illiteracy. When a child can read a book that is culturally relevant, or they see a kid who looks like them, it's in their mother tongue, they can go home and read it to their parents, now, that child will also hopefully one day also learn a language like English because if you speak only Khmer, you might be able to speak with 20 million people. If you speak English, you can speak with 3 billion. But we're not either or at Room to Read. We're both. Get the child literate in their mother tongue, then have them learn other languages like English. Are there cultural inhibitions to reading or to devoting a lot of one's life experience to reading? The biggest issue that I see is there's not necessarily a habit of reading. Because if the parents are illiterate, they've never gained the habit of reading, and so therefore they don't inculcate that habit in their kids. We actually have a team at Room to Read that is called, it's a glorious name, the Habit of Reading Team. And their only charge is to figure out how do we get children into the habit of reading. What are the answers? Well, I think part of it is, is having a child-friendly environment where you, a child will go into the library and see brightly colored walls, see kind of pint-sized furniture. The books are at eye level, the child's eye level. They're not behind locked doors. They're not behind glass panels. They pick the book off the shelf, 
And it's not a textbook, right? Because textbooks are black and white. They're text-heavy. There's no photographs. They pick up a storybook, and they, they see these bright colors, and they enter this fantasy world of, the, you know, the baby elephant or the baby fish who swims amongst the, you know, and there's a book in Khmer that's called, this, you know, the, the, the octopus learns to use the computer, and the octopus is, like, on eight different computers at one time. And it, just these stories for kids are, are so exciting. And I think that what's been lacking in the developing world is – to me, it's fairly obvious that if a child grows up with a library that's designed around their needs and it's a warm, welcoming, friendly place, it's the happiest place in the kid's life, then they start to basically develop the ability to read. The global pervasiveness of illiteracy is staggering. Nearly a billion people cannot read or write. It restricts their ability to conduct simple daily transactions and greatly limits their potential to advance economically and culturally. Thus, when room to read is effective, it contributes to improving the population's standard of living, which gives local governments an incentive to participate. We have a relationship with the government, and the Ministry of Education is a co-signatory to each new school that's built and to the libraries that we establish. So in other words, the government is agreeing to do its job, provide trained teachers, pay those teachers. Many times the community also has to help pay for the teachers, but at Room to Read what we say is we're not going to do everything. We're going to do what we can do, but we're only going to do it if the local people have really committed to making this work. And so one of the ways we can test for that is to say, will the government agree to provide teachers when we open the school? Will the government agree to provide a teacher to run the library that we're going to open? And as long as the answer to that question is yes, then we can move forward. If the answer to the question is no, we can't, but it's okay that we, it's not good that we can't, but at least we learn that early on as opposed to setting up a project and that project's destined for failure because there's no teachers there. Tell us about your efforts to promote literacy among girls. What are the obstacles there? Well, the biggest obstacle is the number of girls who are out of school. Uh, I'll give you a, what I think is a shocking and appalling statistic is that this morning, over 100 million girls woke up in the developing world and did not go to school. 100 million. And it happened yesterday, it's happening today, it's going to happen again tomorrow. And so one of the biggest barriers is, okay, how do you get girls into school? We'll go out and talk to their parents and find out what are the barriers. Well, the school's too far away. Okay, let's buy the girl a bicycle. We can't afford a school uniform. Okay, that's fine. Room to read can afford a school uniform. Let's get the girl a school. Shoes, book bags, school supplies. Are these communities in which the sons are attending school? Quite often they are because about 60% of those who are out of school in the developing world are girls and women. So it's a problem that disproportionately impacts girls. Now, the, the, the thing that I find fairly amazing is that the cost to solve the problem is incredibly low. We can support a girl in school for one year with everything she needs, including mentoring and including tutoring after school and including the bicycle and the school fees, for $250 per girl per year. So it is an incredibly inexpensive problem to solve. It literally, I mean, $250, anybody can do that and pay that, and a girl somewhere in the developing world can go to school. So why is this not a bigger issue? Like, I, I challenge all my female friends who are successful executives to say, you need to adopt this cause of girls' education, right? This should become, like, the next big thing. Like, in the same way that breast cancer, they've done a wonderful job of turning that into a cause that women support, and, and people should. That's a very important issue. What I'd like to add is girls' education in the developing world. Let's not allow ourselves to live in a world where over 100 million girls don't go to school every day. 
And it doesn't just, it shouldn't just be a women's issue, by the way. I'm proud to say, you know, eek bin ein feminist, right? My mother read to me, my grandmother read to me, my older sister read to me. I'm the product of three strong women. So I, every year, put my own money into the Girls Scholarship Program as a tribute to those strong women in my life. Americans take for granted that educational and library institutions will be available in virtually every community. Today, there are well over 100,000 public and academic libraries throughout the United States. But that proliferation evolved over American history. One driving force was Andrew Carnegie, the Scottish-American industrialist. Starting in 1883, thousands of American towns applied for and received library construction funding through his philanthropy. Carnegie is an interesting character in the sense that, you know, you, you can argue one way or the other, you know, was he doing, was he doing what he did for the right reasons? Um, you know, was this just to burnish his legacy? And part of me thinks, you know, I, I'm not going to really worry about that. What I'm going to do is basically say, you know, we're going to create through Room to Read. What we're doing is creating the Andrew Carnegie of the 21st century, right? But the Andrew Carnegie of the 21st century is not going to be an old, rich, white male, right? It's going to be a global network that we build. And we basically say this is the Carnegieization of the, of, of the developing world. Library, we're, right now we're opening five new libraries a day. We've already opened more libraries than Andrew Carnegie opened in his lifetime. Typically, how many books are in the library when it opens its doors for the first time? Typically, the, the libraries, the goal is to have in, in a school libraries between 500 and 1,000 books. So when I say the Carnegie thing, I mean, I, I have to be very clear that we're, we're much more cheap and cheerful than Carnegie. We're not investing in, you know, Roman columns or stone lions, and they're not, they're not the huge buildings Carnegie did. But um, the concept is the same. It's to say you no longer have a barrier to learning regardless, you know, of your income or your gender or your religion or your ethnicity. These libraries are open to all. And what I really think we should do in this lifetime is to say, let's open a million libraries around the world and give access to tens of millions of kids because that literally is going to change their lives forever and give them opportunities that their parents never had. Given your extensive history with Microsoft, how concerned are you about the survival of bricks-and-mortar libraries in an age where increasingly the digitization of text renders the physical books that we know today perhaps uh, obsolete over time? Yeah, I mean, I'm still long-term bullish on libraries and, and books. Maybe I sound like a Luddite because it's kind of fun to prophesize, you know, the doom and gloom of things. But, you know, still to this day, so many of my friends, people, long airplane flights at night, they want to curl up with a book and they want to read. You look at children, I cannot imagine a world in which any parent would not want their children to have books, you know, bookshelves full of books, to curl up with a child at night and read a book together. Once a child learns to read, they can really be platform agnostic, right? They can read books, they can read magazines, newspapers, they can read on a Kindle, they can read on a whatever, whatever they want to read on. The main thing is that they're reading, that they're, they're gaining new knowledge. And in societies where educational opportunities are well-developed, it's often young people themselves who become passionate about extending the advantages they enjoy to kids in regions that are less financially fortunate. John Wood of Room to Read. We have a program called um, Students Helping Students. 
and what we do basically is go into the schools and talk about the kids that, you know, a lot of kids in the developing world don't have what you have. And the kids are always amazed. Like, what do you mean? Kids don't have books. Kids don't have schools. Kids don't have teachers. That's not fair. Kids have an inherent sense of justice. Um, we had a school in a Montessori school in London uh, after the tsunami wanted to actually help build a preschool in Sri Lanka. And the kids were told that's an ambitious goal. It's going to cost about 15,000 pounds. And the, kid, the kids, grades one through five, said, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do it anyway. And the kids came up with this, uh, this most unique fundraising idea I've ever heard in my life. It's called the sponsored silence. For five pounds per child per hour, their parents could buy silence. <laughs> Needless to say, they blew through their fundraising goal and funded a school in Sri Lanka. Silence is golden. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We're talking with John Wood. He's founder of Room to Read and author of Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck, Barbara Hefner, and Sonia Torres. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Room to Read, is Humankind Program number 150. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.